This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, it's Sean Vincent. Welcome to the podcast. I'm glad you joined us today. Today we had the opportunity to talk with CCW Safe's own Gary Eastridge. Now, if you don't know who Gary is... He's got a long and storied career in law enforcement. He was a homicide investigator in Oklahoma City for many years. He also became the guy that would investigate use of force incidents when it occurred with officers on the force. He will mention in a little bit that he had a nine-month contract where he investigated homicides in Kosovo. Uh, despite my temptation, I did not ask him about that because I think that's probably a whole hour conversation on its own. But Gary joins uh, Don West. He's National Trial Counsel and for CCW Safe and a uh, distinguished criminal defense attorney. And our friend Steve Moses, who's a firearms instructor, veteran of law enforcement. And we, you know, often on this show, we take a look at high-profile self-defense cases and look for the lessons learned for the armed defender or concealed carrier. Today, we didn't look at any specific cases, but instead we focused on some of the lessons learned that we've encountered over and over again during the years that we've been recording this podcast, researching these cases. And today we're going to talk about the trouble with uh, an armed defender leaving a position of safety to confront a perceived aggressor and then we're going to talk about the folly of firing warning shots uh so here it is it's my conversation with don west steve moses our uh guest gary eastridge on warning shots and leaving a place of safety thanks for listening i'm working on a gun but <laughs> waiting, for my, waiting for my insurance, I mean, my air conditioning to be repaired. Great. Well, well Gary, I love that uh, we've got you as a guest on the show. And while we're recording, you're, uh, you're working on uh, a gun. Why don't you tell the listeners what you're working on? A 1940 non-registered Magnum Smith & Wesson, which is a, somewhat of a rare bird. Unfortunately, this one has... Uh, seen some significant neglect in its life so what uh, what does it need what, what kind of love does it need from you gary it needs much love it needs uh, it has some action issues that i've attempted to fix i think i'm gonna have to send it uh to a revolver specialist who revolver specialists for those of us in the gun world have become increasingly hard to find as uh as the world has become a semi-auto world, uh, but it uh, it it's got some significant finish issues that I'm going to work over, and then send it out for a professional refinish once I have uh, seen if this action can be salvaged or not. If not, it'll be a uh, paperweight and possibly broke down for parts. Well, it's always fun to have a project, as if we don't have enough things to worry about in our everyday lives. 
Well, who among us haven't had some action issues in our lifetime, or some finish issues? Come to think of that, too. So be be kind. Be kind to it, Gary. Hey, Don. So the the people who listen to our podcast uh, know that you're National Trial Counsel for CCW Safe and a veteran criminal defense attorney. Uh, and if they didn't know that, they just learned it now. Uh, Gary doesn't join us all the time, but he's a, a critical part of the CCW Safe team. Why don't you introduce uh, the listeners who don't know him to Gary Eastridge? Gary has an absolutely fascinating professional history, probably three decades now in law enforcement in one capacity or another, involved for a number of years with the Oklahoma City Police Department. I think that's where he grew up as a police officer. Spent some time uh, abroad doing some training and investigation. I'll have Gary fill in some of the details on that. Spent a number of years as the chief investigator with the Oklahoma City District Attorney's Office, or maybe it's called State Attorney, not sure about which one. In any event, he was running the investigation side of that very important office. And in the last maybe three years now, has joined CCW Safe, brought his skills and insight there. And among the hats he wears, the one probably most important to the listeners is uh, heads the critical response team. And when we have an incident where we put, we rally all the hands and put boots on the ground, people in the air, Gary leads the charge on that to uh, assemble the resources we need, get to the locations we need to get to, and uh, begin the process of advocating for uh, for our member who's just been involved in a serious self-defense shooting. Gary, can you fill in some of those gaps now? Uh, you covered it pretty well. I, I spent 22 years with Oklahoma City and retired out of the homicide unit uh worked a lot of violent crimes a lot of self-defense incidents a lot of officer involved shootings uh went overseas spent a year in kosovo in the former yugoslav republic uh working homicides primarily i spent a year there of my year contract uh nine months was working homicides uh, then in 2007, uh, I was offered the job of chief investigator for the Oklahoma County District Attorney's Office. The way Oklahoma is set up is we're in uh, judicial districts. So um, there's 77 counties, but there's only 20-some districts. Oklahoma County, being the largest and most populous, is uh, a one-county office. It is a state agency, and some people do call it the state attorneys or the prosecutors, but generally we refer to them as the district attorney. But I did 10 years there investigating, uh, mainly in a supporting role, but uh, I reviewed all officer-involved shootings, all, all uses of force by law enforcement that resulted in significant injury or death, uh, about 130 some cases in my 10 years uh, there. Um, I had actually been on the investigating investigative team that uh, worked our CEO, uh, CCW Safe CEO Mike Darter, his police shooting back in 1997. Uh, so fast forward. Uh, 
20 years to 2017 and Mike called me up and said they had a need and uh, recruited me to come to work for CCW Safe where I've been for now a little over four years. Gary, I want to ask you both for, as from the perspective of a homicide detective and from the perspective of the critical response team director, how important are those first minutes, hours, and days after a self-defense shooting? Well, it can be extremely important, uh, you know, knowing what to do immediately after you've been involved in an incident, knowing what not to do uh, immediately following an incident, uh, and then just having that support mechanism uh, that can kind of guide you through the processes as as guys like Don who's in and out of that courthouse all the time and has handled these cases as most law enforcement officers can tell you it becomes kind of a matter of routine for them uh, but for the private concealed carrier and to a lesser degree law enforcement they may go their whole life without being involved in a critical incident so having a uh, having some process and procedure in place prior to the incident uh, is of tremendous value. Don, what do you find are folks most what are what are people most surprised about when they have their first encounter with the criminal defense system? Hard to say what they find to first to be. Uh, the most impressive because practically all of it is likely to be a mystery to them and confusing. So I think maybe I can summarize that by saying the most impressive thing I think people feel when they're first thrust into the criminal justice system, whether it's being arrested or even being investigated or questioned, and then, of course, the anxiety and fear that naturally flows from having become the target of an investigation or a prosecution is this notion of helplessness. You surrender all of the control that you thought you had to other people. You're no longer making decisions uh, about your own freedom, about uh, your job, even whether you can visit your family and such. If you have been arrested and are in jail, all of your decisions are being made for you, including when and if you can use the phone, when and if you can get bail, when and if you can have visitation. So I, I think people have become overwhelmed, people that have gotten so used to being in control of their lives, and no doubt many were in control of the moment when they exercised uh, through training or experience or circumstance uh, the need to use deadly force to save their own lives or to save the life of someone else, and yet at that moment the pendulum shifts completely. When the police come and you're in handcuffs and you're in sitting in the back of the car, I imagine it resonates more than any other thing, just uh, how helpless you are and, and how you no longer have any control. Uh, that, of course, can be broken down into little bitty pieces, and each step of the criminal justice system creates its own challenges. 
even when you have the help of able counsel and even when you have the kind of funding and resources that CCW Safe members have. So at least you're not dealing with that. Uh, nonetheless, uh, beginning to end, there are challenges and um, anxiety producing moments. And then, of course, there's this notion that if you become prosecuted somewhere along the line, what's going to happen? Uh, and you can't control that either. You can't control what the witnesses are going to say. You can't control how the jury is going to interpret those witnesses. You can't control whether the jury will believe you. So it's a, it's a daunting, daunting experience. And Gary, you've worked for the prosecutor and now at CCW Save really for the defense. And is it your experience that it's rare that law enforcement will make any determination about a self-defense shooting being justified or not justified in the immediate aftermath? Even the cases that end up being declared justified can take days and often weeks to be investigated and then have a determination. Is that your experience? Yeah, the uh, the determination of justified or not justified, legal or not legal, is, is made by the prosecuting authority. So n me as an investigator, I can offer my insight to the prosecutor uh, and say, you know, in, in my opinion, this this appears to be a, a justified self-defense shooting, but uh, that's that's just my opinion. Uh, and to kind of follow up with what Don's saying, this is it's a very very impersonal system. You as a as a defendant become a number and a statistic and a case uh, titled by the state. Uh, and so much of the time, the system just wants the facts and nothing but the facts and doesn't want all the gory details. Uh, so you can't even, as Don was saying, you can't even control what uh, information is available for them to, uh, uh, to make a decision for. So... I set that up because what that means is that whether or not you're ultimately justified in the self-defense shooting, when you've pulled that trigger and someone's been injured or killed, uh, or even in some cases you you didn't hit them at all and nobody was hurt, but that still unleashes a investigation that could end in prosecution, it could end in exoneration, but that's many days and often several weeks where you're just in limbo and you don't know. And our, our friend, Andrew Branca, Don, he always talks about the legal risk of firing a weapon in self-defense. And, and it's never zero once you've fired in self-defense. And that's why in a lot of these podcasts, we really stress avoidance. And we talk a lot about uh, how you unless you absolutely have to, uh, shouldn't pull the trigger. And Steve, uh, we got Steve Moses. He's a firearms instructor and CCW Safe contributor. And Steve, there's something that you've said. I, I thought today we'd go through 
often we talk about specific cases and draw lessons from cases that we've read about and, and pulled out of the news. But we've come to, over the years we've been doing this, a lot of the same lessons and the same conclusions. And there's one thing that you said that I think if people thought about this, we'd avoid a lot of unnecessary shootings. And that is, if it's not safe to go there with a gun, it's not safe to go there. Or actually, let me try this another way. If it's not safe to go there without a gun, it's not safe to go there with a gun. Tell everybody what you mean by that. Well, my point is that if you feel like the situation is so dangerous that the only way you can manage your own safety is to bring a gun with you, it actually doesn't do a whole lot to mitigate that same risk to you. It simply means that you may have a, uh, a tool you can work with in case something actually does happen, but uh, it doesn't mean that it's going to necessarily change the outcome of an encounter with another person. And so if you're willingly saying, hey, I'm not going over there, it's an ATM, it's three o'clock at night, I need to go, it's not safe to go there unless I have a gun. Well, you're not, you're not safe there with a gun. You have no real say uh, over the actions that a mother, another person may take. And in some instances, like when it comes to, well, I've got an angry neighbor, uh, he kicked my dog, uh, he's, you know, threatened my child or something, I'm gonna go over there and give him a piece of my mind. But just in case he has a gun, uh, I'm going to bring a gun. Well then, if it's that dangerous, you're probably going to be a whole lot better served by not going there at all. And Don, if you've left a place, if you've put yourself into a place where it's more dangerous and you didn't absolutely have to be there, does that weigh against you when people look at whether you were justified or not? Well, I think that it certainly can. And often when a, when a prosecutor is evaluating a case and looking at not just those moments around when the trigger was pulled and are looking at a broader, more expansive view of how these people came to be together, what were the circumstances that led up to this confrontation and, and ultimate, perhaps lethal confrontation. Uh, they're going to look at what they think may have been motives, uh, predispositions, attitudes, they're going to look and see whether this was a, a, a guy looking for trouble, looking for a fight, wanting to be the alpha male and dominate and looking for someone to do that to. So the notion of inserting yourself into a circumstance that's likely to be volatile, likely to result in some kind of violence when you don't need to, I think, paints a negative picture of you. And it's one more obstacle I think you and your lawyer would have to overcome when trying to show that, in fact, you were facing an imminent threat of great bodily harm or death. You had no choice but to use lethal force in defense and, perhaps most importantly, that under the totality of the circumstances, you acted reasonably and appropriately as the law says, as a cautious, prudent person would. And 
the prosecutor always has the argument, what you did wasn't reasonable. And if they can get some traction with it from whatever uh, perspective and undermine your claim of self-defense by painting you as an unreasonable person, then they've got a pretty good shot at convincing a jury that they proved it wasn't self-defense. You were looking for a fight, you were looking for trouble, and uh, you found it. So, uh, yes, of course, uh, how you come to be in that situation, what kind of judgment you exercise along the way, long before you're in that moment of truth, becomes very relevant. Gary, have you had any experience with this in any of the cases that you've been involved in? Absolutely. That's one of the things as an investigator, you 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 take a deep look into why was this person at that location at that time in this incident. If it's an incident that stems from a maybe a long going uh, a long standing dispute, or as Steve mentioned, you know a neighborhood type dispute. Uh, we're going to research your your social media. We're going to we're going to research. We may run a search warrant on your uh, uh, computer, your 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 communication devices, and then we're going to find out uh, where you sent your wife a text and said, "I'm going to go take care of that guy today. This ends today," or anything like that that could be used as showing maybe an aggressive posture. Uh, so absolutely, that's uh, once the incident's over, the the investigator has all the time in the world to to pull together all of this raw data to take to a prosecutor, who can then put his or her spin on it, just just like prosecutors and defense attorneys do in every case. The prosecutor is is going to try to spin it that uh, you went there looking for a fight, uh, that that you knew that there was the potential for trouble. That's why you armed yourself. Uh, not saying that that's good or bad. And and to kind of touch back on something we were discussing earlier, if you are charged, you've got a two year. Your life is going to be changed for two years, minimum two years. It's going to be changed forever in reality. But as far as the ramifications of what you did, the legal ramifications, you're looking at about a two-year window until a jury makes a decision. If you're not charged, that window's left open. If, it's, if it involves a death, 10 years from now, I can come back and file a charge on you. Well, and what, I think what you're saying there, Gary, is that it's it's actually relatively unusual that the the DA will come out and announce, "Listen, we're not charging." They can just not do anything, and it can be held open for indefinitely, right? That's we 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 experienced that. We've got a case with a member from Las Vegas from over two years ago. Uh, we've been told unofficially no charges are going to be filed. We have not, and nor do I expect to ever see a letter saying uh, this was a good shooting, uh, no charges are to be filed. Uh, what's, what's common is what I used to call the FBI clearance, which is uh, there's not enough evidence to prosecute you today, but if some more evidence comes along at a later time, we will revisit this. 
Yeah, which means you just live in limbo for the rest of your life. Potentially decades. Potentially decades. Yeah, Steve, talking about this, I was thinking about the, uh, remember the Alan Womack shooting where the guy had had an argument in the gym of an L.A. fitness center, right? And then he walked out and the, the Alan Womack, we don't know the name of the shooter in this case, had, had waited for him outside. And it, when we talk about, there's there's one thing where you go to a neighbor that you've had a beef with and, and you're concealed and you have a gun and, and something happens. But I think a lot of times people might identify with, at night, my car is in the middle of that parking lot. It seemed fine when I parked it in the daylight, but now it's kind of in a spooky spot and there's some crazy guy wandering around the parking lot. You know, and I, I think it's, even at that, if you think you're going to have a problem with that guy in the parking lot, indeed, I, I think we, we feel like as concealed carriers, we got ourselves, we're going to carry ourselves, we can get to the car, but is there any wisdom in just waiting or avoiding those circumstances? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's one thing to, you know, take a look out there and not see anything and think, well, uh, I don't see anybody. I need to get to my car, but I really need to make sure in this particular instance, I am armed. Uh, But, Indeed, if you see someone out there, well, I think you probably need to assume that the very worst can happen and act upon that. And there is nothing wrong with contacting law enforcement and requesting them to come in there and uh, investigate. And by the same token, if you're walking out there and you're halfway and at that point you see the person, well, you really don't need to continue on to your vehicle. Again, there's no reason, no good reason to not go back to a safer place where, you know, you can get behind cover, uh, get some distance, get behind concealment, and uh, contact law enforcement. Yeah, we've seen a case like this. Like, what if, what if even someone's messing with your car? And now we're in a, in a defensive property situation, or we think we are. I mean, do you, do you encounter... And I'm putting this all in the context of like Andrew Branca always talks about don't go to the fight. And when you say if it's not safe to go there without a gun, it's not safe to go there with a gun. What I'm thinking is for concealed carriers that a great rule to have is if you find yourself leaving a place of relative safety and going to a place where there is a higher risk of a confrontation, you have to put in your mind that you're making a choice there. And if and and then you have to think about what is the sacrifice that I make if I make a different choice by not going to where I wanted to go, and so it's it's am I going to avoid this crazy guy in the parking lot by waiting an extra ten minutes and seeing if he goes away so I don't have to handle this crazy contact, or we've seen a case where there are a bunch of people leaning on or touching or or being around a vehicle and the owner of the vehicle felt compelled to go. Um, engage uh, and, and protect his property. My perspective on that is that if I say step outside of a business or a home and I see someone that is uh, messing around with my car, attempting to break into my car, uh, I don't see an issue with uh, you know yelling at them to, hey, that's my vehicle, you need to get away now or I'm calling the police. 
uh, and you know, see how they react. Uh, if they don't, if they run off, great. In many instances, that's probably what's going to happen. Uh, on the other hand, if the person uh, gives every intention that they're going to stay there or perhaps even move towards you, then I think you need to get back uh, into the, the building from which you came or create distance from that particular person because I can absolutely uh, you know, assure you that getting into a shooting or you know, possibly having to explain why you displayed a weapon is certainly not going to uh, you know, offset the, the cost to you of uh, perhaps having to pay the uh, deductible on your uh, comprehensive portion of your insurance. And even if, you know, people some say, well, I don't have comprehensive, or that's a very valuable, you know, item to me, I can't replace it. Well, again, it's, you have to ask yourself, okay, if something happened to me in which I was either injured, uh, I was killed, I was charged, I was indicted, I was perhaps imprisoned, uh, would I be willing to trade that uh, in order to protect that property? And I think most rational people would say, no, that's not a good trade-off. Hey, Gary, I want to change subjects a little bit. And I've encountered folks from time to time who feel that if they were maybe defending their home from an intruder and they didn't feel that their life was immediately at risk, they would contemplate uh, firing a warning shot to to scare the intruder away or to demonstrate their w willingness to use a firearm. From the perspective of a law enforcement or a homicide detective, how are warning shots perceived? Oh, they're, they're viewed as a very bad idea uh, for several reasons. I mean, law enforcement is trained. You know, in, in some of the de-escalation de um, emphasis that we've heard in the public that's that's one of the things that's been brought up is is why don't you either shoot the wound or why don't you fire a warning warning shot before the use of, of lethal force the problem with the warning shot is you're still employing lethal force and that that bullet has to go somewhere uh and you're creating a greater risk to possible innocent parties by discharging a warning shot than anything you may gain uh, as a, 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 a um, oh, as a defensive measure. Ultimately, like I said, you are employing deadly force. So if there is grounds to use deadly force and it is imminent and necessary, why are you firing a warning shot? Right, that kind of that kind of indicates that you're not immediately in fear for your life, right? Yeah, you, it it must not have been necessary because you had time to to fire this warning shot. Uh, and then, like I say, overall the uh, the risk to innocent parties is far far exceeds whatever value the warning may have. And Don, we've seen charges related to a warning shot can go all the way up to attempted murder if there's a good argument that that wasn't a warning shot but a shot that missed explain the difference in magnitude between charges related to say a defensive display or brandishing incident where the gun is drawn but not fired and a warning shot incident 
Yeah, you make a really good point there, Sean. I think that underscoring this idea of why warning shots are a bad idea, you touched on it. And first and foremost, a prosecutor is very likely to make the argument, as we've heard before in cases that we've discussed in detail, that she said it was a warning shot, he said it was a warning shot, but it sure looks like to us it was attempted murder and a miss. Mm -hmm. So they don't consider whatever mitigating aspect a warning shot could have. They look at it as a failed murder. Now, we don't know how to sort that out. It may very well have been a so-called warning shot, or it could have been a miss. But the notion behind all of that is, if you fire the gun, as Gary exactly pointed out, you have then employed deadly force. There is no question about that. It's a matter of law. You're not going to convince anybody that firing a gun, whether it was intended to be a warning shot or not, uh, is not deadly force. It is. On the other hand, there are circumstances where, well, let me back up and just emphasize that you can't use deadly force, and Gary pointed this out too, you can't use deadly force through a warning shot um, by firing a gun uh, unless you could have used the deadly force to defend yourself. So in other words, if you're not facing an imminent threat of great bodily harm, or death, you can't use deadly force, whether it takes the form of shooting at someone that's trying to kill you, or a warning shot. So you're not gaining anything by that. If you want to argue that there might be some very, very limited circumstances in which I could safely fire a warning shot into the ground, and it be interpreted as a warning shot when I otherwise could legally uh, shoot the person that was attacking me. Uh, Maybe there is a very narrow set of circumstances. I'm not sure I could come up with them exactly, but notwithstanding that, you still have to deal with the point that Gary made as well, and that is, well, if you had time to fire a warning shot, there can be a credible claim made, then the threat itself wasn't imminent. And of course, if any one of your self-defense elements fails, one like the threat wasn't of imminent great bodily harm uh, uh, or deadly force itself, or it wasn't imminent in that it, it wasn't happening right then, if any of that stuff doesn't isn't sustained by the evidence, you don't have a self-defense claim at all. And What we should have talked about maybe to emphasize is the reason self-defense is so tricky is because but for your claim of self-defense, you've committed a crime. You've pointed a gun at somebody and shot them or at them, or you've done something whereby if you didn't have justification for doing it, you've already committed the crime. You've admitted it was you. You admitted that you were the one who fired the gun, but you say that it was justifiable because of the circumstances. If any one aspect of your justification fails, then you're stuck with the crime that you've already essentially confessed to. Uh, Circling back, though, to your question more specifically, Sean, there are circumstances legally. Many states have specific statutes that say the display of a firearm without shooting it, the display of a firearm 
even sometimes uh, in a threatening way, but certainly just showing it, sometimes even pointing it, is not, at least by statute, considered to be deadly force. So what the law is saying is there are situations where you are facing a threat, a clear and imminent threat, but not necessarily one which rises to the level of uh, threatening great bodily harm or death, where you can legally display your weapon in an attempt to dissuade the person from continuing the non-lethal attack. Uh, in that situation, then it's really a question for the investigators and for law enforcement, uh, for the district attorney, your lawyers, to kind of figure out what was going on and whether or not you had a legal basis for displaying the weapon under those circumstances. You fire the gun, like we said, it's completely new ballgame, different situation, and you have then employed deadly force, and you can't do that unless you are facing a deadly force threat. So it's very, very treacherous. It's a really, in every circumstance that I can think of, a really bad idea. And um, it, I think it would behoove probably listeners to look at the statutes in their specific state and see if there is actually something in the statute that describes the circumstances under which a firearm can be displayed and it is not considered to be using deadly force. Some states have developed that through case law, but many states uh, have specific statutes that say that. We get a lot of brandishing problems. Uh, we have people that are too quick to go to the gun, uh, that don't understand those narrow circumstances that you can display a gun in the face of non-deadly force. So I think it would be, everyone would be well advised to know the law in your state on that and be very, very careful before you decide this is one of those situations where you can display the gun, um, notwithstanding firing it. And Steve, from a tactical standpoint, uh, a warning shot, I imagine that could be misinterpreted as either you're incompetent with a weapon or you lack the resolve to actually use deadly force to defend yourself. Uh, I, I think both, but especially the latter in terms of uh, I've got my gun, I told you I'm going to shoot you, I'm willing to shoot you, but instead I simply fire a round into the ground or into the air. And uh, there's enough people out there that have a lot of, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, street experience. They've seen a lot of violence in their lives. Uh, they've seen things that probably we can't even imagine. And if they indeed see somebody act in that manner, I can see why they might think that, uh, okay, this person is not willing to follow through uh, to that end. Uh, I may want to go ahead and stay here. I may not want to comply. Or I may want to force the issue and see if I can perhaps at some point get my hands on it. All right, guys, that's our show for today. Thanks for listening through to the end. I hope you'll tune in next week. We're going to continue our conversation with Gary. And, you know, we're going to talk about uh, the process we have here of, quote, unquote, second-guessing defenders, our Monday morning quarterbacking, and what we're really trying to accomplish there. So I hope you tune in for that. Uh, until then, be smart, stay safe, take care. <laughs>